Hello and welcome to episode number 125 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Tuesday, May 24th, 2011. This podcast is, uh, well, more than a day late, actually over a week late, but uh, I was traveling to California last week and I just could not get it out. So apologies for that, as always, and uh, without any further ado, let's get right into this interview. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Blaine Jurdis. Blaine is a rancher, farmer, and holistic management practitioner in Saskatchewan, Canada. Blaine, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. Well, let's start by having you tell us about your farm. Where is it located? How big is it? And how long has your family been working this particular piece of land? I'm not a very big farmer in by Saskatchewan standards. Uh, it's only 800 acres in size. Uh, my family's been on this particular farm for 100 years now. I'm the third generation. I have a son that is now farming with me. That'll be the fourth, and the fifth is on the way, so we're kind of excited about that. Um, I was a high-tech grain farmer for about the first 25 years of my farming career where you couldn't give me enough technology. As I grew older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I started to question some of the things I was doing. Primarily, the health of the land is what worried me. It seemed to me like it, it wasn't as live, alive as it used to be. And so I started thinking about what what was going on and uh, starting to worry about things like that. And, uh, about 10 years ago, I got exposed to the concept of holistic management, and uh, a lot of light bulbs went off for me when that happened. I'd already seeded some down to grass at that time, and that just kind of made it work for me. Okay. What are the primary things that you produce? Um, we produce... Um, we run an, a, a small herd of beef cows, 65 cows, about 70 cows, depending on the year. Um, I also raise Berkshire pigs, one of the heritage breeds. And my son, when he joined me, he started a small sheep operation, and he also started raising chickens and turkeys. And we direct market most of the meat also from the operation. Plus, we, uh, we also custom graze cattle for other people. Okay. Um now let's talk let's get into the the details of this transition that you referenced um you've made a transition from a high input industrial mode of production to a low input holistic approach can you tell us what spurred this transition um uh, you mentioned that you were concerned about the health of the land but spell that out for us in a little bit more detail well I, 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 that was the primary motive uh the secondary motive was probably financial that we were no longer making any money. Um, you know, we were dealing with a lot of money, but when you analyzed it at the end of the year, we'd spent an awful lot of money at Cargill and and uh, various other agricultural uh, supply dealers. We'd bought, basically bought the crop, and if everything worked, you'd make a little bit, but if everything didn't work quite right, you didn't make any. So, so that was probably the secondary motivator for us to think about what we were doing. But the first one was the health of the land and that we were seeing, I don't know, more resistance to herbicides. Uh, it seemed like we had, we were never gaining on the weed issue. It was just a continual uphill treadmill that we were always pedaling harder and harder, it seemed. 
And so we started seeding grass down and not using any inputs and using animals, letting them do the work. And it seemed to, the last 10 years have been a lot easier than the, the first 25. Talk us through some of the phases that you went through as you made this transition. Um, did you see distinct phases uh, as you moved away from high inputs? Did you slowly wean yourself off the high inputs? Did you do it all at once? Um, and what were the stages that you went through as, as you went through that process? Well, I'd sowed some grass before I got exposed to holistic management. So I'd sowed, sowed about a quarter of my farm to grass. And I kind of thought about this rotational grazing. I'd read quite a bit about that. So I went out there and pounded some posts. Had no idea what I was doing. Didn't understand recovery. And I started to graze. So I did that for about two years, custom grazing cattle. And that was a very steep learning curve, having never owned an animal through the first 25 years of my farming career. All of a sudden, custom grazing somebody else's animals, there was, there was quite a learning curve. And it actually worked not too bad, but I didn't understand recovery time, and it, the system would have crashed if I would have continued to do it that way because there was I wasn't using any fertilizer, of course, at that time. So um, <clears throat> the system would have crashed shortly. But it, but it was a very interesting way of getting started. As we started to seed more grasses, uh, I started to learn that you had to sow a diversity of species. The first stuff I sowed, I sowed pure monoculture. My paradigm still was monoculture agriculture. So the first grass, I sowed pure grass. As I, After a couple of years of that and some exposure to holistic management, I started to think that diversity was a good thing. So we started sowing you know, two or three different species. In the last quarter we sowed here about three years ago, I think we had about 20 different species in the mix when we sowed it down the last bit of grass we finally sowed, and it's by far and away the best. So that's kind of the progression. Uh, then we started to own cows. Um, in Canada here we had a major issue with BSE, and basically the beef market fell apart for a few years when that happened, and that was just when I was getting started in that. So for a couple of years it was pretty grim sailing financially because of the BSE crisis and and going away from the grain production system into a new grass system. So there was virtually no cash flow there for a couple of years. So it kind of made me wonder if I was doing the right thing. But when I looked at the soil and kept, you know, looking and observing things, I was pretty sure that the land was, wasn't getting worse. It was maybe I couldn't see it was getting better yet at that point, but I, I knew it wasn't getting worse. So, so that gave me encouragement. Will, you mentioned that you hadn't actually worked with animals prior to uh, making this transition. So were you a grain crop farmer, or, or what exactly were you doing before? Yes, before I was a cereal cropper. Uh, in this part of the world, the pr predominant crops are uh, wheat and canola, peas and barley would be the four main crops that are grown. And so I was growing them as annual crops on, a, on an annual basis, seeding seeding in the May period and harvesting September-October. And that would go into the primarily into the international market. So that's uh, pretty common in terms of uh, comparing with your neighbors. I mean, most of them are annual uh, crop farmers as well, I imagine? Yes, they are, yeah. So when you made this transition, I mean, that's a pretty big shift. You have to learn quite a lot in terms of animal husbandry and... Um, you know, an, an animal is, is quite a complex organism that takes a, a certain level of understanding and, uh, require, and requires a higher level of management, perhaps. Was that a difficult transition for you to make, and how, how did you deal with some of the animal husbandry aspects of it? 
Um, I, I think probably I, I made a major error in my life that I didn't start with animals because I found out I liked them once I got into it. I guess when I went through agricultural college, I was sort of taught that if it won't go through a grain auger, you shouldn't grow it. And so hence I got it got to be a crop farmer. But as I began to work with animals, I realized that I was actually very good at that. And so I think the animal husbandry was sort of came naturally to me. I, I don't claim to be an expert by any means, but I'm reasonably good at good at looking after animals and and you know managing them and so on. It doesn't uh, it, it works very well for me. So now you rely as a as a farmer and producer, you rely much less on fossil fuels than you did before. Was this something that was intentionally built into your program, or was it just a consequence of your shift in perspective? I, I think it was a consequence. I don't think that was the primary motive for me changing to a grass-based agriculture. I think my, my motive was the, the health of the land. I realized that was number one importance. And I think now that I realize how little petroleum we use, it is definitely a significant factor. We're probably using 90% less petroleum than we did 10 years ago. And at the price of petroleum nowadays, that's a significant cost savings. But that, I don't think, was the was my motivator. Okay, now look around you and think about some of your neighbors. Um, how do you see that you are positioned, I mean, we all, as you, as you mentioned, know that Fuel prices have been extremely volatile, um, and getting more and more expensive as the day goes as the days go by, and this uh, definitely affects farmers. Um, how are other folks dealing with this, and how do they respond to some of the changes that you have made? Are people more interested now in what you're doing than they were maybe ten years ago? Um, that, that's a very good question, and, and my quick answer would be no. I don't think so. Uh, part of the issue is that commodity prices are also very high, so people are still able to to make, in fact, they're probably making better money now than we did 10 years ago in the commodity business. And so as long as they're still able to buy fertilizer, petroleum-based, and diesel fuel, fungicides and herbicide, all petroleum-based, you know, they can still make a reasonably good margin on that. So they aren't particularly looking. But I guess what, what I see coming, and I think most people that, that are thinking about these issues, you know, I think we're going to come to a day fairly shortly where they are not going to be available at a price that's going to work. Either the, the commodity prices are going to fall down for some reason and, and the petroleum prices are going to continue to rise. And all of a sudden there's going to come a point at some point very soon in the future where it's not going to work anymore. And then they're going to be looking real, real hard and fast. Well, what about what, what? What is your positioning relative? I mean, I'm sure you still use some fossil fuels, although you've reduced your your fossil fuel usage quite a bit. Um, what are your thoughts about that going forward? And where are the areas where you see there's some upside for you to continue to reduce your fossil fuel use? Well, one of the issues that we have here in our in our cold climates is feeding in the winter, and most. Traditionally, most farmers with cows will feed cows approximately five months. We're down to, we try to do it under three months now. And so we're doing that by the concept of stockpile grass where we, we grow a lot of grass and we plan for our winter feeding 
So we will maybe harvest grass once in, in say, early June, and we leave that grass standing till either late, late, late fall, like December, January grazing, or else start grazing again late March, early April when the snow starts to melt. And we can make considerable savings in the amount of hay we need by, by doing that. In fact, we, we started grazing here on the 10th of April this year, which is um, quite early for most people. And uh, some of the first passes that we've we've done now, we've been at it 30 days today, I guess it would be, um, we're actually harvesting $100 an acre is, is our net on grazing that stockpiled grass. We're, we're carrying uh, just a phenomenal amount of animals on that. And the reason it works so well is because there's new green growth down in the bottom. And so the animals are excited to go for that new green growth. But in the process, they have to eat some of the, the old dead material. And we kind of hope that they're, they're eating approximately half of the dead material and trampling half of the dead material back down onto the ground to become litter and food for the the microorganisms in the soil, which will eventually become organic matter and will make the soil even more productive in future years. So that's where I see uh, considerable savings in petroleum. And I think as we get better at doing that, we may may even be able to get down to two months. Maybe even some point in the future, we'll be able to not feed hay at all in the winter. I don't know. But that's where we're trying to head because that is our major petroleum user is... is, uh, running balers and, and cutters and so on to, to make hay. If we could eliminate that, we could basically run without petroleum here, other than we use cars and trucks to go to town and so on. But... You, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you did not understand recovery, uh, but it seems like it's something that you've gotten a handle on now. Can you talk a little bit about that and your process of understanding recovery and how you manage that? Well, once once the grass plant gets eaten off, or alfalfa plant, or whatever it is, there's it's a major shock to the system of the of the plant, and so it has to go through a healing process. Uh, it shunts uh, food, sugar, sugar up to the crown, and then the process of new leaves begin again, and the and the photosynthesis restarts, and then the plant begins to regrow. So basically, what you have to do as a grass manager is, from the moment you eat it off, you want to protect that plant from any further major stressors like another grazing until it is fully recovered or basically to the point where it's ready to flower again. And that, in our climate up here, depending on the time of year, if it's now middle of May, that will happen within 25 to 30 days. If we're talking September grazing or August grazing, that won't happen again until next year. So it all depends on the time of year. So you need to be very aware of what season it is and how long it takes the plant to recover. When we do our grazing plan, we sit down in November and December of each year and we actually plan where the cattle will be every day the following year. And we make sure that we have at least 100 days from the time we eat a plant off until we're back to that plant again to, to uh, ensure that we have adequate recovery on our land. We, we want to make sure that the plants are fully ready to be grazed again before we go back and take another bite off that plant. How consistent is your precipitation regime there? In, in some places like West Texas, some years they'll get 40 inches of rain, and other years they'll, they'll get 8 inches of rain, which makes it very difficult to do some uh, grazing planning or, or any other kind of planning. Um, how consistent is your precipitation where you are? Uh, we're probably more consistent, but we definitely are on the arid side of, uh, of uh, 
the equation of the brittleness scale. Uh, but we are in the eastern prairies where you know we're almost to the Red River Valley, so we are definitely a lot more moist than than probably West Texas. But it is erratic, but but probably not to the same extent. So I think we can safely count on a reasonably good growing season most years. But you know, at the same time, you're always kind of thinking. In in my 40 years of farming, I I can remember some pretty darn dry years. So you're always kind of thinking about that, and that's one of the reasons why with that 100-day recovery, our plants have really good deep roots on them, and they're going down into the moisture down there, and because we have a lot of litter on our land, the water cycle is much more effective than the neighbors. So when we do get a small rain, that water does run in, or it does soak into the soil, and then the roots are able to get it, and they're able to extract water from deeper down because they're much healthier than plants that have been continuously grazed. Well, you started out this interview discussing land health and your concerns about the health of the land. Can you tell us what you've observed about land health on your farm um, as you've made this transition and in what ways has it improved? Well, it's, it's somewhat subjective because it's hard to remember what it looked like 10 or 15 years ago, but when I go across the neighbors and look at the land, it looks dead. When I walk on it, it doesn't look like there's life in it. Whereas if I take a shovel and dig in mine, you can almost see the life jumping out. It's black. It smells rich. You can smell the echinomycetes in there. It's got that sharp, pungent smell. Um, the litter disappears reasonably rapidly, so that tells me that the microorganisms are working and decomposing that. We're starting to get very healthy um, populations of dung beetles are working, even in our cold climates here. So that tells me that they're they're doing good things. They're taking the manure patties down and... Uh, what they can get incorporated by the microorganisms down there and make more organic matter. Above the ground, we're starting to see some of the native species of plants that were probably here 100 years ago before civilization started to break the land. We're seeing them returning. I don't know whether there was uh, seed in the, in, the, in the bank, in the soil. I, I really don't know how they came about. I know I didn't seed them, and all of a sudden we're starting to see you know plants, flowers, etc., that were never here before, at least not in any time I can remember. Uh, we're seeing more of the grassland-type birds that probably I didn't see on this particular farm. They weren't particularly rare in the area, but we're starting to see them nest here. Uh, so I guess I'm seeing all sorts of things like that happening to tell me that the land and, and the, the ecosystem around this farm is getting healthier. And how do those things affect your quality of life? Uh, in in uh, my particular goal, that's very important. I, I like to have uh, those things. Also, we tend to work a little bit less hard, or we don't work as hard as we used to. Um, we still have to do something because we've got animals out there every day that need to be tended. But but uh, you know, the hours of work, you know, probably a couple hours every day is all we really need to work at doing it. Lots of days we do things because we want to do them, but but it's. You know, our quality of life is definitely better than it was before. Well, you mentioned your neighbors and how you can go on neighboring farms and it just doesn't feel quite as alive as your farm does. Um, I wonder how they react to what you're doing from the quality of life aspect and from the health of the land aspect. I mean, ultimately, does this come down to values and perhaps that they don't share these same values that, that you do? Or, I mean, what accounts for those differences ultimately that are reflected in management 
I don't know. That's a very good question, Frank. I I wrestle with that one on a regular basis, and uh, I don't I don't have an answer for you. I know that when we do a a field day or something like that, we get very little uptake from the neighbors. It's usually people from 50 or 100 miles will come to see what we're doing. They're very interested in it. But the local neighbors, it's so-so. It seems like you got to be 50 miles away from home to be an expert. And so we have very little uptake from, from the immediate local neighbors. And in talking to other people, they, they all say the same thing and, and other people's that are, people that are doing the same type of farming as we are that they, they notice that too that usually the immediate neighbors i don't know what what i i would be very interested to know and how they think because it, it it would seem to me when you look across the fence and can see that vast difference that you'd be interested in what the heck is going on there but they don't seem to be i guess it doesn't fit their paradigm well you also mentioned that you raise cattle turkey sheep um so you have a multi-species grazing management going on there. Can you talk about some of the challenges of multi-species management, but also some of the advantages of it? Well, I think I, uh, my son does both chickens and turkeys. When he started farming here, he needed to create some, some income, of course, and uh, chickens and turkeys are a reasonably easy way, low capital type of thing to get into. It doesn't take a lot of money. When you calculate it out on a per acre basis, it beats the heck out of cows, I'll tell you. And we raise the, the chickens are brooded in a building for about three weeks, and then they are then the turkeys, and then they are raised outside. We use chicken tractors, uh, where the chickens are placed in uh, uh, approximately 70 to 80 chickens in a 10 by 12 tractor, I guess as we call it, and we move them ahead every day onto fresh, new, clean grass. Chickens are exceptionally healthy. Uh, we direct market all our chickens up here. We do about a thousand chickens a year. And uh, we could do 2,000 easily, just word-of-mouth advertising. People just can't believe it. They claim they haven't had chicken like that since uh, they can remember eating at Granny's house 50 years ago. So that tells us that uh, when you get healthy land it, it, and, and look after the animals properly, let them eat what, what Mother Nature wanted them to, grass and bugs, and we also feed them grain, of course, but they become it becomes very very healthy food for our bodies, and that that in turn should relate to to better human health also. So he, you know the soil health directly relates to our health. Well, how does your farm income break down along those lines in, in percentage terms? Um, is most of it coming from cattle? Most of it coming from turkeys? Uh, what's what's the breakdown there? Uh, probably the majority of our income still comes from custom grazing cattle, because we're. As our land gets healthier, we're growing more and more grass every year. And over the last number of years, when we've done enterprise analysis, the cow-calf operation is not particularly profitable. Um, but we don't want to get rid of the cows because they are very useful things to have with a herd of yearling cattle when we bring in. It keeps them tamer. Um, the cows do some good work here in the winter and able to open up things when we get into deep snow and so on. They can they can break a trail into bales and so on where, where yearling cattle couldn't do that. So it's very handy to have a few cows around. So that's why we've kept the cows. But on a, on a um, profitable basis, they've tended to be at the bottom end, whereas grazing, like right at the moment, we have 300 custom yearlings here, so we're, we have a herd of over 400 head here right now. And the the custom yearlings pay way better on a on a per acre basis. 
So that's where we've tended to concentrate. And as, as the land gets healthier and every year we grow a little bit more grass, it's quite easy to add another 20 or 50 more more uh, yearlings because they're here for the summer basically and then they're gone in the fall. So it, it, it saves on some of our winter workload. We don't have to have them here all year. They just come in in May and are gone again in September. Well, after many years of experience under your belt and uh, much knowledge accumulated through that experience, knowing what you know now, how would you have done things differently, if at all? Well, I guess if I would have uh, known what I know now, I would have started out farming like this. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really quite exciting. I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to slow down and do less. I'm 60 years old now, so I'm in retirement mode, I guess. I'm not planning to really retire, but I'm definitely slowing down. But it's really interesting to watch my son, who's young and energetic, see how he he, he likes to do things. And it's going to be, you know, we have had a tremendous learning curve in the last 10 years, but I believe we're just starting into that. I think the next 10 years, we will learn at least as much as we have had in the last 10. So I think it's going to look, every year things change here. We're, we're not scared of change. In fact, we embrace change. We think it's a good thing, and uh, we're continually changing things, trying things different. And uh, I believe that as he takes over and I do less and become more of a, a watcher and an advisor than I do a, as a doer, that, that he will continue doing that. Well, along those lines, what do you see next uh, coming next for your farm? Oh. <laughs> uh, I think we'll we'll see the land continue to get healthier. Uh, we've looked at um, we we grow quite a number of trees up here. Uh, one of the things that we've toyed with a wee bit is is um, looking at somehow working lumbering in with grazing cattle. I think there's some natural fits there. Just how it works yet, I don't know. It's a long-term proposition. It's 20 or 30 years from the time you plant a tree until. Uh, it's going to be harvestable, so there needs to be a, a considerable amount of thought on that. Um, I think the other thing that uh, we're starting to, to do a little bit more of is um, uh, agritourism. Um, you know, people, especially urban-based people, are really excited to see animals in a natural situation. They can't go on to into a broiler barn or a great big hog factory. You know, that's not allowed, and people wouldn't even want to go in there if they could. So it's really interesting for them to see uh, a natural-based food production system. And we encourage visitors and we encourage transparency, the people that buy food from us. We, we encourage them to come and look at our farm and see how their food is raised. So I think there's tremendous opportunities in that, you know, whether it's bed and breakfast, whether it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know. We, we aren't there yet. It won't be me, but it could be my son and daughter-in-law that, that move into that that kind of thing more more into the I don't know whether it's hospitality business but uh, capitalizing on the fact that we do have very natural spaces here bird watching pops into mind as we get more healthy uh, environments we're seeing more birds so that that bird watching is one of the biggest hobbies in the world so you know that naturally makes people come and so I think there's a lot of opportunities there probably there's some I've never never even thought of yet that will will become apparent to us in the future what advice would you give to anyone who is listening to this and who would like to follow a similar path that you have followed 
what are some of the things that you would like them to be aware of as they embark on that journey? Well, the first thing I would recommend that anybody wanting to start would be to take a, a holistic management course. I believe that is a, a prerequisite to, uh, to success. I think you need to understand what, what it is you're trying to do and how, how the world actually functions. And once you understand those two things, then I think it becomes a lot easier. When I watch the neighbors and talk to the neighbors, I find that they still don't really know what it is they're trying to do. And uh, so I think that would be the, the first bit of advice I would give. And the second bit of advice, I think, would be to, to uh, you know, don't get too set in your ways. Be prepared to change. Be prepared to uh, be very open-minded. You know, look, look, try, experiment. Uh, you know, assume you're wrong when you make a decision and, and monitor it carefully. And if it is wrong, you know, don't be scared to uh, change it. And the third bit of advice would be to uh, not borrow a whole lot of money. Be very careful on how much money you go to the bank and borrow. You know, try and it's maybe not quite as easy. I, but in my opinion, it's far better to, to have a part-time job or a full-time job and start farming on a smaller scale with something like chickens or turkeys that are pigs that are fairly low capital intensive and uh, learn how to do that and hopefully in five years you you can be done done with the off-farm job if that doesn't fit with your goal and you know that was just a, a stepping stone to get where you want to go in finance internally well as we wrap up here uh wrap up with a, a kind of a big picture question um not specifically related to your farm but related to agriculture in general in your part of the world um, what do you see are some of the big trends in farming and ranching in your part of the world? Well, in the very near term right here, the uh, industrial grain model is getting bigger. Like There's lots of farms here now are 10,000 acres, and they're trying to get to 15,000 acres. That's kind of where what the goal is in the very short term. But as we discussed earlier, I don't believe it will be sustainable from two points. One is the soil health issue. Their soil health is actually declining. And the second issue, of course, is the petroleum issue. So those two are two strikes against them before they start. As far as, as trends, I believe that when we do get to peak oil, if we're there or past, as, as we all of a sudden we begin to realize that this is not good, um, this system right here sequesters carbon big time. I think we're all aware of... Uh, global warming issues, global climate change, all those kind of things, uh, this system of farming will help to negate some of the effects of that. We're, put, we're taking, taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and we're put, putting it back into the ground as organic matter is where it should be. In our part of the world, we were at 12% organic matter at settlement 100, 120 years ago. Today, most of the soils in this part of the world are between 4 and 5% organic matter. So the last 100 years of bad farming have lost over half of the organic matter that that Mother Nature let us inherit, and I believe it's uh, our our duty as as uh, farmers and stewards of the land to get regenerative and begin to replace that carbon that we squandered or our forefathers squandered away, and start to put it back into the ground where it should be. And the more carbon we put back into the soil, the more profit we're going to make because we're growing more and more and more. So I think that's a trend that as people catch on to this, we're going to see more and more people starting to look at grass-based agriculture. Well, Blaine Giertas of Saskatchewan, Canada, thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thank you for making a real commitment to 
regenerative agriculture in your part of the world. And thank you for sharing your story with us today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Frank. It was my pleasure. That concludes my interview with Blaine Jurdis of Saskatchewan, Canada. He is a rancher, farmer, and holistic management practitioner. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I was in California all of last week uh, on a ranch out there. And if you are curious to learn more about this particular part of the country and this particular part of the world, then be sure to tune in to next week's episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast as I will be featuring an interview with uh, someone who has a lot of experience in that part of the world. So I encourage you to tune in. Now, quite a while back, I had let the audience know that I was interested in doing an interview with Sepp Holzer, who is the uh, permaculturalist in Austria, and he's uh, quite good at what he does and quite famous for being good at what he does. But unfortunately, for me at least, he does not speak English. And I put a call out to the community to assist in an interview with Sepp Holzer. Uh, many people reached out to me and expressed a willingness to act as a translator uh, from German to English for that interview. And the more I've thought about it, it's something that I really want to do. But unfortunately, uh, the logistics of it and the time aspects of it, I just can't take that project on right now. And um, I'm sorry to the folks who had their hopes up high to get Sepp Holzer on the Agro Innovations podcast. Now, that said, if somebody wanted to uh, do this on their own and go out there and maybe do some of the translation and some of the audio work that would be involved, I would be more than happy to facilitate that process in some way and to publish the final product on the Agro Innovations podcast if uh, you don't have the time or the wherewithal to get that information out there. Now, also keep in mind that uh, the listeners, the listener base for this podcast has been growing steadily over the years, and if you were to do an interview with Sepp Holzer, uh, this would be a good avenue to get that interview out to a, a very interested community. So, again, I'm sorry that I cannot take on the Sepp Holzer interview at this time. Perhaps at some other point in the future, I will have uh, maybe a little more time to, to deal with a project like that, but... At this point, um, I just don't see it being possible. And once again, thank you to all the folks who contacted me willing to assist with that interview. I really appreciate the active community that is the community of the Agro Innovations podcast. And on that note, uh, this podcast does have a Facebook page that um, thus far has, oh, probably just about under 100 likes, which isn't too many. I'm sure other people out there who are on Facebook uh, who have not liked the Agro Innovations podcast yet, uh, I, I would like for you to do so if you could. So I will link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And hopefully uh, we could get things maybe going a little more actively on there in, in terms of community. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.